Aren't you glad to have Pastor Darwin back? Thanks be to God. I'm so grateful to have him back and have him back as a part of our team again, and, but so grateful that we were able to send him for a month to be with his sister. We would have grieved mightily had we not sent him and then he not had time with her. So thanks be to God. Thank you for your generosity to those of you who participated in making that possible. We are so glad for you and for Bastard Darwin's time with his sister and family. Just to remind you that you can give to Paznaz. Pastor Darwin leaned over and said, please tell them about the giving. So I'm glad he's back. You can give to Paznaz. You know all the ways that you can do that, and it's great. I'm excited about the promise of the technology workshop on Saturday. Because if I understood Pastor Darwin right, if there was something I needed help with, he could help me with that. So Pastor Darwin, I hope you can help me with my bill for my smartphone. <laughs> didn't, you hear, didn't you hear the same way I did, right? Okay, all right. I'm sure Pastor Darwin will help us. And uh, that workshop is for people of all ages who may need technological assistance. And so we invite you, even if you're younger than Pastor Darwin, to come and be a part of that service. I have some more good news. We have an executive pastor coming. Thanks be to God. Now this week in the Paznaz Update, you'll get to see a picture of Pastor Marshall Jackman and his wife, Cindy. Uh, they'll be moving our way from Palm Desert. And so I look forward to introducing them to you uh, very soon. He will join us full-time the last Sunday of June, and we look forward to having him and his wife among us. And so thanks be to God. This morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. We come now as we make our way through the Bible and make our way to understand the story of God to the books of the prophets, there are 15 books of the prophets, of which Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the largest. And if you take time to read all 15 books of the prophets, you will learn that every one of the prophets had a life-changing encounter with God. They had a time, a period of time, a season, a moment with God that completely reshaped their understanding of God, that completely reshaped their engagement with the community on behalf of God and reshaped their message out of their life that was to be declared on behalf of God. And so we come this morning to the book of Isaiah. And as we explore these prophetic books, it's my prayer that we will explore them with an eye to understanding what was taking place when they were written and how they shape our understanding of the story of God for our own lives. How many of you remember these? Watch the screen here for a moment. You remember these? SNH green stamps. Blue chip stamps are next. There you go. How many of you still have some of those? I see those hands, yes. <laughs> for those of you who are too young to know what these were, 
They were symbols of a loyalty rewards program. Today you get points, then you got stamps. You may not know this fun fact, but the SNH Green Stamp Program began in 1896, before most of you were alive. I know some of you are calculating. Was I there? But these were symbols of a loyalty rewards program, and instead of points, you could receive green stamps, blue chip stamps, gold bond stamps, and there were a variety of stamp programs. And when you accumulated enough stamps, you acquired them by buying merchandise at supermarkets, gas stations, department stores, drug stores. When you accumulated enough stamps, you would force your little kids like me to lick them and put them in a book. That was the most horrid stamp glue in the world. It has so affected my taste buds, they're still harmed today. But when you'd accumulate enough stamp booklets, you would review the stamp company's catalog and redeem your stamps for various kinds of merchandise. The more valuable the merchandise, the more stamps were required to redeem for the merchandise you wanted to own. The promise of the various stamp programs was to give you something more valuable than you had before you went through the act of redemption. The stamp program was a program of redemption. As we come to the book of Isaiah today, the book, Isaiah, book of Isaiah is full of a program of redemption. It is full of the hope of God's program of redemption. It is 66 chapters, and it is something that we need to hear on this day, in this place, in this season of life, with all of the turmoil and all of the sinfulness around us. We need the message of hope and redemption that Isaiah brings to us today. And so let's read together from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack near you, the New Revised Standard Version, or most of the Bibles in the sanctuary. I'm reading from the New International Version. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 16. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the According to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me, and so he became their savior. In all of their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he, he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? 
who led them through the depths like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your peoples to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. The word of the Lord. Historically, Isaiah's ministry occurred about 800 years before Christ. You may recall from chapter 6 of Isaiah, where Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I was before the Lord. And the 66 chapters of Isaiah can be split broadly into two great segments. Chapters 1 through 39 describe God's coming judgment for Israel's rebellion and disobedience along with the rise and fall of Jerusalem. However, in the midst of Isaiah's prophecies of judgment in the first 39 chapters, there are also powerful threads of hope and redemption and promise. We need to remember that. In the midst of the prophecies of judgment, there are also powerful threads of hope and redemption. The second segment, chapters 40 through 66, include prophecies of hope for Israel to be God's servant to the nations of the world, to be a light to the nations. Included in that section are prophecies in chapters 52, 53, and other chapters of a servant who would be rejected and killed, but would live again and redeem people to establish the kingdom of God on earth. The lives of God's redeemed people were to be a stark contrast to the lives of the wicked who care only for themselves. Isaiah's prophetic voice and writing helps us understand the arc of the story of God. Isaiah speaks of events such as the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 64, which would not occur for 200 more years after he wrote and prophesied. Already we mentioned that he wrote 800 years before the birth of Christ and prophesied the Christ. We somehow need to stop and ponder that for a moment for God's time is on a schedule different than our time. God's arc of God's story is different than the arc of our own story. God thinks in terms of millennia and centuries, not just days and weeks and months. God thinks in terms of generations, not just days and weeks and months. And so when God is at work, God is at work far in advance of our own understanding, far in advance of what we hope for. On a good day, we might be able to see the horizon a few miles out on the arc of the earth, but on every day, God sees well over the horizon of the future. And our hope when we understand the arc of God's story is that we will come profoundly to trust God for the long arc of the story, not just the story in the moment. 
as Pastor Brad can, would say, can I get an amen? But I've been thinking about what it means to understand the arc of God's story and how that can shape us theologically. I don't know about you, but, but I have a tendency to think that if God doesn't work now in the moment that I need God to work, that maybe somehow God has forgotten me. Anybody else want to testify? But when I read this and understand that 200 years and 800 years before, God is already thinking and planning and providing in ways that I cannot even comprehend. When I ground my hope in the God who's got the long arc of story beyond my comprehension, that gives me confidence for today, for the need of the moment. And so it is, Isaiah helps us and gives us a glimpse of the patience of God that works across thousands and thousands of years. Our scripture reading is part of a larger prayer of Isaiah from chapter 64 to chapter 66. And it is in this passage that Isaiah uses the story of Exodus to give us insights into his theology or his understanding of God. In verses seven through nine, Isaiah reminds us that God is gracious and kind and that we can remember his kindnesses. Can you remember God's kindnesses to you? Can you remember how in the journey of life, even when you are not yet following Christ, God was kind to you? God was kind to you through God's prevenient grace to draw you, to bring people across the path of your life, to speak hope, to live before you in a way that attracted you to hear and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when you look back in the rearview mirror of your life, you can see God at work even before your time of commitment. Thanks be to God, that's a kindness. Can you remember the kindnesses after you chose to follow Christ in which God came and said, let me make provision for you? We can tell, John and I can tell story after story of God's provision for us. Even when there are moments in our lives when we said, you know, if it would work out this way, it'd just be perfect. And it didn't work out that way, and yet when it did work out the way God wanted to, it was better than what we had thought would be perfect. Anyone want to testify? Thanks be to God. It is a good thing for us every once in a while to stop and to listen and to remember God's kindnesses. The acts of God beyond our own ability to provide that sustained us through times of want and sustained us even through times of plenty. And so thanks be to God for Isaiah's call to remind us that God is gracious and kind and that we can remember his kindnesses. And then in the first half of verse 10, Isaiah reminds us that God is holy and God's holiness creates a challenge, creates a problem for us. 
Remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is in the presence of God and he says, woe is me for I am an unclean man. When we are in the presence of God's holiness, it becomes clear that there's still more refining work to be done in us. Is it okay? Could we agree on this? If you don't agree, it's okay. You can be wrong. (laughs) Could we agree on this though? You and I will not achieve perfection until the day we stand before the throne of God in heaven. And so between that time, this, this day and that time, God still has work to do in me. And you will say, yes, he still has work to do in you, Pastor Joe. <laughs> but I would rephrase that and say, between this day and that day, God still has refining work to make us holy as he is holy. And in the first half of verse 10, Isaiah reminds us that God's holiness calls us into account. The American pastor A.W. Tozer expressed it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. And then Tozer goes on to say this. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. I have a mental image of God as being gracious and merciful. But that has also be, must also be coupled with an image of God who is holy. Because without that image of holy, I may tend to lean into a God who is only gracious and merciful and will let me get away with anything. But a God who is gracious, merciful, and holy reminds me that yes, there is sin, and yes, I can be sinful, and I might be sinful, and God's grace and mercy can help me, but God, that does not mean that God is going to tolerate my sinfulness. How is it that we conceive of God? And to what image do we gravitate to? In verse 10b, in the second half of verse 10, Isaiah reminds us that God cannot and will not overlook sin and rebellion against God's word. God cannot and will not overlook sin and rebellion against God's word. That sin brings consequence, including the loss of God's blessing, and if rebellion comes, continues long enough without repentance, destructive consequences become real. I ask you if you could remember God's kindnesses to you 
if you've ever wandered away from faith in Christ, can you remember that experience as well? Can you remember the isolation? Can you remember the loss of God's blessing? Can you remember the consequences that were compounded in your life because of the decisions you had made in sinful ways that complicated your life? You see, that's part of it. For if there is no sin, there's no need for redemption. And without our recognition of the sin present in our life in the past, without our desire to be continually refined by the Spirit of God, there's no need for redemption. There's no need for refinement. And we risk being left in a place of spiritual complacency. And we are tempted to say, I've learned all I need to learn. I know all I need to know. I'm living all the ways that I need to live for God, period. When in fact, God may want to call us to something different. God may want to call us to a new place of devotion, a new place of commitment, a new place of sacrifice, a new place of living different than where we're living currently because we can, and God understands this, that's why he gave us his Holy Spirit, that we can become complacent. And complacency cannot be tied to obedience. And it can settle in among us. It can settle in and take root in us. I had a man say to me one time in a church many years ago, I hate that I'm old enough I can say that, many years ago. Laugh, your day's coming. <laughs> this man said to me, I don't see a need to keep learning. I've, I know what I need to know and I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine where I am, thank you very much. It grieved my heart and my spirit to hear that from a man long in the faith. But he had arrived. He had arrived economically. He had arrived at a, with a place of status in the community. He had arrived at a place of leadership in the congregation. And he had no need he could see within himself until he arrived at a place where he said, I don't need more. I don't need more growth. I don't need more refining. I don't need more money. I don't need more stature. I don't need more responsibility. I'm fine right where I am, and this is where I'm going to stay. It's the most dangerous place for a believer to try and live because in its essence, it is a statement that reflects disobedience we okay it's a hard teaching I understand that sometimes in professional vocational circles we talk about 
we want people to be lifelong learners. That's merely a reflection that you're gonna have several different vocations during your lifetime and you've gotta keep learning and recreating yourself in order to stay employed. But in a biblical sense, being a lifelong learner is simply to lean into the teaching that the Holy Spirit of God has more to teach us, to teach me. Being a lifelong learner is one of the fundamentals of living a holy life. It is to start today and say, oh God, what do you have for me today? Who will you bring across my path today that I need to be sensitive to? What is it that you would have me do today with the resources you've given me that you've entrusted to me that I'm a steward of, P.S., not an owner of? Because the holy person recognizes everything within their grasp, within their embrace, within their reach is not given to them on their own effort. It is God's provision to them for God's purpose that, by the way, extends hundreds of years into the future. And that our commitment to be a lifelong learner is a commitment to say, we're gonna trust you for all that you have given to us on this day, that it might be used well beyond my existence on this planet. Because God's plan involves us embraces us, welcomes us, but it is bigger than us. That may be news to some of us. But think about that. Aren't you glad that you and I get to participate in something much larger than us? That God does way beyond, does way beyond us? And isn't solely dependent upon us? Pastor Brad last Sunday in his message on Pentecost talked about the church, the birth of the church and how it exploded far beyond what anybody could imagine. Why? Because the engine that lit that spark was the work of the Holy Spirit, not the machinations of mankind. Thanks be to God. And I have to tell you that I want to be a lifelong learner in the Lord so that I can be a participant in what outlives me far beyond something that I could even imagine long into the decades and the centuries beyond this day. Verses 11 through 14, Isaiah reminds us that God is a God of hope and seeks to Redeem those who will respond to God's call to be holy, that God will come and provide. It's a curiosity to me. But I wonder this morning, here in the sanctuary on this main floor and in the balcony above me and online today and tomorrow and the day to come when somebody will watch this. Who of us sits here among us who's become complacent? 
Who of us sits here among us wondering if God would invite them into the family of God? Who among us sits here needing to be, desiring to be redeemed? Could I just say to you that God is a God of hope and God will redeem you. God will give you a new heart. God will reinvigorate your spirit. God will give you a new vision. God will call you from the place of complacency. God will move you into a new understanding and God will refine you if you are willing to let God redeem you from your pleasant place of existence. Verse 16 brings us great hope. I lack, like that closing phrase, your name is Redeemer. Your name, O Lord, is Redeemer. Our God is a God whose reputation is to redeem from rebellion and destruction, to create a new future found in the suffering servant of Isaiah in Jesus Christ. A redeemer is one who pays a redemption price to redeem someone who is in the possession of another who has laid claim to that person. Jesus Christ has paid the redemption price to redeem you and me from the possession of the evil one. The redeemer not only frees the person from the possession of another, but also restores the redeemed person's rights and privileges with the redeemer. There's an additional dimension to the definition of redemption and redeemer. It is that God redeems to restore those caught in poverty. God redeems those to make provision for them. God's liberating act of redemption sought in Isaiah's prayer was fulfilled with the return of the exiles from Babylon many years later and the rebuilding of the temple hundreds of years later and is a template for what God did for us in the gift of Jesus Christ. He looked down and lived among us, John 1 says, and preached the good news of deliverance and redemption. And now because of the gift of the Spirit on Pentecost, the Spirit walks among us to bring redemption to the lost. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God as Redeemer has a twofold purpose. Ryan Higginbottom said it in this way God is called Redeemer on many occasions in the book of Isaiah, but that is more than just deliverance. God's people are seeking restoration. Whether oppressed by an enemy or by the weight of their disobedience, they ask God to restore their rights to restore them to their original state of safety and peace with him. I invite us this morning to receive the understanding of God's redemption as having a twofold purpose. There is first of all that personal benefit, that restoration of relationship with God, that release from isolation, that opportunity to have God's provision to begin to overcome the consequences that we brought upon ourselves by our decisions. And that sometimes take a while, takes a while to sort out in life. 
But the added value of that personal benefit is that it creates a new life in us with a new perspective and we have a new wisdom partner that is now part of our life to help us chart the course that lies ahead of us. But there's a second dimension. There is a community benefit. For we are redeemed for our own personal benefit, but we are redeemed for the benefit of the community around us. And I don't mean just inside the church. This is a safe place. Most of the time. Till you come and hear a sermon from Isaiah. But think about this. Because we are redeemed to be God's agents of redemption to restore communities as God would have communities to be restored. For as we read through 66 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about justice 30 times. Let me ask you a question. How did you learn to know when your parent, your mother, or your father really wanted your attention? In my house, it would go like this. Joe, Joseph, Joseph Ezra Watkins III. When it got that formal, it was serious. So when God speaks of something over and over again through the voice of Isaiah, it seems to me it's a serious matter. Now I know that sometimes in our communities of faith, we sort of get sidetracked on a discussion of justice. We sometimes react to a phrase like social justice. And I understand that. It's a secular term. But there's also justice, Christian justice. You see, friends, justice is the language of a holy God. Justice is the language of a God who is holy, for whom justice is a part of what it means to be holy. So I think all of us in this room and online are wise enough, bright enough, smart enough to separate whatever the concern is about this phrase over here from what it is God seeks when he wants to restore a community under his understanding of justice. Because friends, let me just say this, because it's biblical. We cannot be holy people and not engage in justice in the community. If you can make a biblical case that you can be holy without engaging in justice on behalf of the community, I would love to talk to you. What Isaiah does is help us create a theology of God as a God who redeems not only persons but also communities because what Isaiah is praying for in these chapters is 
the redemption of Israel as a community to restore justice because Israel not only rebelled in a way of commission, Israel rebelled in the way of omission and forgot about justice. They weren't practicing justice. And in the breadth of scripture, all the way through these 66 books, justice is a recurring theme. And so when we speak of holiness, I cannot ignore this concept of God's sense of justice, what God hopes for us to be engaged in as we seek not only to redeem individuals, but to redeem communities. You can follow the thread of justice throughout Isaiah. It begins in chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Redemption of the person is God's path to redemption of the community. Isaiah's purpose is to help the reader be aware of what has broken the heart of God and brings judgment upon the people is their rebellion against God's law and God's understanding and sense of justice. And I, can I, I, I'll just be really, honest with you for a moment. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. I love the Church of the Nazarene. I love our theology. I think our Wesleyan theology is just outstanding. Because in Wesleyan theology, it has both the need for salvation and the need for justice, care for the marginalized, care for the disenfranchised. But growing up in the Church of the Nazarene, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene in the 50s and the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, the 2010s, the 2020s. I'm still growing up in the Church of Nazarene. But growing up in the Church of Nazarene as a child, I heard a lot of preaching about the sins of commission. I almost never heard anything about justice. I never heard about the other half of holiness until I was a senior in high school. And my father, who drove the Sunday school bus, you remember Sunday school buses, anybody? They're like green stamps. <laughs> my father drove the Sunday school bus. He'd go out every Saturday, knock on doors. He'd go to any neighborhood in town. He'd go to the projects. He'd, he didn't matter to him. He knocked on doors. If he could find children to bring to Sunday school, he would bring them. There would be white kids, brown kids, black kids. And on a Sunday morning, I was a high school senior, and I was standing on the aisle back about three-fourths of the way in a sanctuary, not this, not this large. And 
And my pastor stood up and said, someone complained to me about the black children who came on the bus. They were unruly, they're not well-mannered, they don't know all of this stuff we think they ought to know. But he said, I don't ever want to hear them. I don't ever want to hear complain about them again. That was justice. It was the first time growing up at Church of Nazarene I ever heard an expression of justice. So this sermon really is not about justice. This sermon is about redemption. It is about hope. It is about the hope of God that Isaiah speaks of in the midst of rebellion and disobedience and the judgment that is to come and the hope that was to come later in Jesus Christ. It is about the awareness that God is a God of hope and redemption, that he redeems us for his purpose, that is our own personal salvation and the redemption of communities. It's not an either or. It is a both and proposition. So I would just say to you in conclusion, God seeks to redeem us to the full experience of holiness as expressed in Isaiah. If you have a need to be redeemed in a moment, I'm going to pray. I invite you in that moment of prayer to pray, oh God, bring to me your salvation, or oh God, redeem me from my complacency, or oh God, speak to my heart and refine me. And let the Spirit of God begin to work in you in a new way and be drawn closer, ever closer, ever closer into the presence of God. Let's stand together. Gracious and loving God, I am so grateful for the 66 chapters of Isaiah that speaks of your heart that seeks to redeem people, that seeks to redeem us from our rebellion, our sin, our complacency, that seeks to redeem us from limited understands of what it means to be holy. And so God, I pray that you hear the prayers of your people this morning across this sanctuary and to those watching digitally. Oh God, redeem us. Redeem us for your good purpose for ourselves, but also for our community. Redeem our minds, redeem our understandings of holiness so that we would work for justice as you would have us to work. And so it is we ask these things. In the powerful name of Jesus, prophesied by Isaiah, who today by your spirit walks among us. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you receive this benediction, please? 
You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has a purpose for you being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you where you are. Believe this now and go in the grace and the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Go in hope.